0: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thanks for coming uh, to our briefing today. My name is Ellen Vaughn, and it is my pleasure to welcome you today on behalf of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute to our briefing on sustainable, affordable housing. I want to say a special thanks to Congressman Matt Cartwright and his staff uh, for enabling us to use this room on Capitol Hill. And I want to say just a few quick uh, items before I introduce our terrific panel. Um, it's a large panel, so I don't want to take too much time because they have uh, wonderful things to say about uh, the topic. Um, but I did want to mention that we'll have Q&A at the end of all the presentations. So please make note of any questions that you have and and we'll... Uh, we'll We'll do that at the end. Um, And I also wanted to mention that this briefing today follows a briefing that EESI had on February 22nd on the issue of environmental justice in the Clean Power Plan. And the Clean Power Plan, as many of you know, is uh, the EPA's um, regulation for electric utilities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there was um, a legal stay on that uh, by the Supreme Court for implementation, but despite that, many states are pressing forward with, uh, with their plans for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And this briefing today is related in, in a couple of different ways. One is that the EPA also published um, a rule uh, that provide, that establishes an optional clean energy incentive program um, that rewards states for implementing energy efficiency projects and renewable energy projects in low-income communities. So, um, you know, reducing emissions uh, through demand end-use demand-side efficiency or renewable energy uh, in uh, low-income or disadvantaged communities is um, is is uh, an incentive um, for states but what is this what does this mean um, I'm gonna let the panel tell you what that really means but uh, basically new and and renovated homes and buildings sustainable uh, homes meaning they're energy efficient they utilize renewable energy and um, can be excellent compliance strategies for states for the Clean Power Plan. But it's also much more than that. Uh, Energy efficiency makes housing more affordable, more comfortable, healthier. You're going to hear a lot more about this from our panel today. Better buildings equal better communities. And we have a growing crisis in this country. Uh, We don't have enough... Affordable housing. And it's not just for low-income households. It's even middle income. Uh, and affordable meaning you shouldn't have to spend uh, more than 30% of your income for housing and running that house. Uh, because then it's difficult to buy food, to buy medicine, transportation, and all of, all of those things. So in other words, sustainable housing is a win-win-win, and I'm delighted that we have this panel here today. I'm really, um, it's really an honor uh, to introduce everyone. Um, And I'm first going to introduce Linda Metropolis. Linda is Director of Housing and Neighborhood Development for Action Housing in Pittsburgh. Uh, Linda has worked with Action for or with Action Housing, I think, for about 10 years. Um, it's a nonprofit, and Linda started as their sustainability consultant. And it really has she really started this trend of sustainability and affordable housing in Pittsburgh. Um, Linda, I'll let you okay.
1: take it away. afternoon everybody. I'm happy to be here. Um, Let me first tell you a few things about Action Housing. We're a 58-year-old organization and uh, I came to work with Action Housing about 10 years ago to look at their existing portfolio and to begin to look at all the affordable housing in the Pittsburgh area and what we could do to better the energy performance of all the multifamily housing that was deemed affordable. The organization has a long track record of understanding exactly what Ellen talked about, which is that affordability is not just in your rent, but also in your utility costs. And so Action is actually the largest weatherization assistance program provider in the state of Pennsylvania. We've done about 40,000 low-income houses over the last 30 years. And on average, I've saved people, about 20% of their utility. So we come to this issue of affordable housing and energy efficiency from decades of work. And um, about, um, I think I was figuring about 2010, so here I have a few slides. Uh, So in about 2010, I had the good fortune to travel with a group of housing developers, nonprofit housing developers affiliated with the um, it uh, with uh, um, a group out of Boston that represents uh, nonprofit housing developers, uh, Housing Partnership Network. I'm not sure if you know of them, but there are about a hundred of us who are concerned about um, affordable housing and increasing the number of affordable housing units. On average, in the U.S., we produce about 130,000 new units of affordable housing. Uh, through the low-income housing tax credit program each year. And there are many of us who have a very deep interest in uh, sustainability and um, energy performance. We had the good fortune in 2010 to travel to Germany to look at passive house buildings. And so we took a much more serious commitment, thanks to our director, Larry Swanson to uh, develop all of our new buildings with a high degree of energy performance. so what we really, um, we've looked at a whole bunch of things. But when we came back from Germany, um, I said to Larry, can we do Passive House? Can we do our newer projects to the German standard, which is Passive House? I'm not even going to try to explain what that standard is, because uh, we have Kat Klingenberg, who's going to speak next. But um, it was one of those true moments of um, synchronicity where I came back from Germany after looking at these passive house buildings, which were spectacular and and used just a fraction of the energy that we typically do with our buildings. And within two days, I was having dinner with Kat at a a mutual friend's house. And it was from there that our work, um, which I'm going to talk a little bit about, in um, energy efficiency really jumped off. And so um, this particular project is uh, the Mackie Loft. It was a historic bakery building that was built in, I think, uh, 28, 29, and um, houses 45 low-income units, including about 10 that are specifically for people who have sight or hearing impairment. and. Uh, This was our first foray. It's a really big scale uh, energy efficiency. We were able to do a geothermal system. We did not do passive house on this project. We've taken on a couple of different YMCA projects. Most of you probably know that when the Ys were originally built in the U.S., most of them had... Uh, single-room occupancy. They were sort of um, kind of transitional housing for people that might be moving into a city. Often it was only men who lived in these woods, but now they have become um, a lot of our housing of last resort. So we have taken on two projects. This is a uh, 258-unit SRO Um, that is above about five stories of commercial space in Pittsburgh. And we are in this building on a steam system in downtown Pittsburgh. And through the uh, uh, weatherization program, I think seven years ago, through ERA, there was a huge infusion of uh, funding that came into the uh, WAC program. And we were able, in Pennsylvania, we were one of only two states to be able to use that uh, source of money for multifamily affordable housing, and we were successful in bringing in about three, three and $3.5 million dollars on this project to retrofit it, and reduced our energy cost by about $125,000 a year. This is heavily subsidized through county and city support, and so um, we are just about to break even, and that energy reduction was really important to help preserve those 258 units of SRO. Um, The next project we took on, another YMCA, this one in the Keysport, which is about 12 miles outside of downtown Pittsburgh, was actually our first uh, large-scale Passive House project. And um, one of the reasons we love Passive House so much is because the um, costs are going into the envelope and not into expensive and complicated mechanical systems, which are often really complicated to... Um, maintain and require, in some cases, um, you know, pretty significant s- uh, skills by the uh, management company and, and cost. And so after coming back from Germany, we thought, well, let's give this building a try. It was in our LIHTC pipeline, our low-income housing tax credit pipeline. And so we did design this 84-unit. Um, um, Uh, building to Passive House Standards, our energy costs, we actually bought it from the YMCA for $10, they were very happy to give it to us at that point, lots of deferred maintenance and and, uh, uh, issues that um, I don't need to go into, but our energy costs before we bought it, uh, no air conditioning, um, about $70,000 a year, and really not very nice living conditions. Uh, we added air conditioning, we did a geothermal system, we did complete passive house renovation, and um, our energy bills now are in the neighborhood of about $40,000 a year. So not only did we save money, but we improved the quality of life. But people living there, and this is a great infrared image, the building, the purple building, is showing just how um, tight an envelope it is. The building in the back that looks more yellow is the Housing Authority projects, which is just kind of leaking heat. Um, the next project we did was the renovation of the old VFW building. Uh, library is now occupying it in the city of Pittsburgh, and this is just another wall detail. To show you the top part, which was finished um, before the bottom lever was finished to pass it off standards. So you can see the difference, just really good insulation we um, and operating at a, a very high level of efficiency. And then the um, project that um, that I next and the last one I want to tell you about is Uptown Loft. So we we were very enamored of uh, uh, the results that we were getting for passives, and we, so we decided to test out two buildings. We just opened uh, the Sly Tech project, uh, 47 units total. The buildings are almost identical. We built two of them, one to Passive House standards and one to 2012 Energy Code. Um, and uh, we're still in the sort of finding stage, but I um, want to give you a sense of uh, the building envelopes. The one on the left is the Passive House building, and the one on the right is the 2012 uh, Energy Code project with an older building. Again, the yellow orange building in back uh, with not nearly enough insulation. Both buildings are performing very well. And I uh, just wanted to give you a sense of kind of, um, some of the other features that we included, the, the, the mural, the glass mural, and then one of the interiors, uh, for the Passive House building, which was, uh, specifically designed for youth who have aged on foster care. And there's our, pass, our Passive House certification, which is really a beautiful, uh, a beautiful thing to see. And, uh, so that's, that's that. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Was that
0: your art? Or was that someone else's art? Because I know you're an artist as well.
1: It's a only... labor. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: um, so I want to mention Linda mentioned the envelope, uh, and that's a very important thing. Trin will uh, will speak to that. I wanted to bring it out also in. in and the big picture for, for one minute, but I failed to mention, buildings in this country use over 40% of our total energy and 74% of the electricity. So that gives you a sense of the, the magnitude of this issue. I am delighted to introduce Katrin Klingenberg. Katrin is co-founder and executive director of the Kassip House Institute U.S., Um, Passive House promotes the adoption of passive building principles in North America um, through consultant training and certification. Um, And uh, Katrin designed and completed the first home built to meet the Passive House standard in the United States. She's designed and consulted on numerous successful uh, Passive House and building projects um, and uh, has really evolved... Uh, the standard so that it works for US climates. Um, she's a lead instructor for the consultant training uh, and uh, is a licensed architect in Germany. Thank
2: you, Ellen. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So, um, I would like to very quickly just give you uh, an overview of what passive house is, or passive building as we have started to transition to as the buildings are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, A little bit of an intro uh, regarding the uh, principles that go into passive building design and all the benefits that come with it if you actually go there. Um, Before I do that, really quickly, um, a little bit of an introduction efforts here, an introduction to um, uh, Passive House Institute U.S. Uh, We are the longest um, standing Passive Building Institute uh, that is promoting this type of work in the United States. We have been working on this since 2003, and um, we do research, we do training, and we certify buildings. Um, When I say certify buildings, then uh, that is, of course, uh, a voluntary uh, certification uh, to quality of shore buildings that are built to, to meet these particular passive building standards. Um, this one project that I'm showing you right here up front uh, as the first image, uh, I'm showing it again later, I think. Um, it's today the largest completed multifamily affordable passive building in the country, and it is in uh, Portland Oregon, Hillsborough, but just uh, And uh, also, I wanted to quickly mention, uh, we uh, received a grant by the MacArthur Foundation uh, last year in support of the uh, emerging affordable passive building movement that we're seeing around the country. We're seeing a lot of um, uh, affordable developers becoming interested in this, and uh, they are in great need of support. And uh, together with Linda, we kind of pioneered this transition from originally single-family passive buildings to passive house buildings, uh, to larger uh, multifamily buildings. And um, there's still a lot of education that needs to happen out there. Uh, it's a simple concept, but uh, it's not that easily done. So very quickly uh, here the back- background story to why passive buildings are relevant. Um, we are in a period of time where we're seeing a transition in the energy market. We are uh, transitioning away from fossil fuel energy. Uh, for reasons of uh, uh, carbon, uh, uh, climate um, change, but also, um, well, resources are becoming more scarce. So, what uh, this is actually a study here done by Shell, what uh, they were envisioning for the next century, they were envisioning a transition to uh, renewables as well as uh, the red area right there, which is uh, conservation. So if we assume that energy consumption worldwide increases as they're projected right there, we do really need to tap into conservation as essentially an actual uh, energy resource. Uh, In a different way, uh, right there we have this gap of where this red arrow was previously, and that is the amount of energy savings that we need to realize in our buildings. And that is essentially the equivalent to the passive building standard. That's where we want to end up. What um, that amounts to is roughly an 80 to 90 percent uh, savings in uh, heating uh, energy demand. Uh, that's, uh, as you might imagine, is, is, is quite a challenge. Um, so, what does that compare to other uh, building programs right now? You're probably all familiar with the 2030 challenge by Edmund Um If you build your building shell to pass the building standards today, you're already at the 80 percent mark of the 2030 challenge. So, that leaves Uh, until 2030 to figure out how to um, finance a very small renewable system or to build community-based renewable systems. And then we are actually within the reach of uh, zeroing out uh, our carbon emissions. Passive building principles, you don't have to understand all these different circles. Uh, Just uh, mainly uh, the uh, little house in the middle that really depicts the uh, benefits of passive building. Uh, there's comfort and health, that's the first and foremost, of course the energy savings are also nice, but we're shooting for a very, very healthy air quality, for filtered air, fresh air all the time, uh, comfortable uh, living spaces because now the surface is all like, well insulated and no in cold spots. Um, that results then in a high quality and durable uh, envelope because we're doing everything right, that has to be done right from a building science perspective, uh, of course there's the cost effectiveness, the affordableness. We want to save enough energy so that we can actually kind of get our payback on the additional investment on the envelope. Uh, efficient, of course, but then also last but not least, really important is resilience. Um, so the passive building standard also is designed to create spaces that uh, can cost two power outages for about like five days. We've run energy models where we can show now that that is actually the case. People could theoretically stay in their homes when the power goes out. And that uh, is also during a very cold period in the winter. Lots going on around the country. Um, Quite a few codes and cities are starting to look at that, uh, programs um, to require passive buildings. Um, The Seattle, uh, as the first city, has passed an ordinance. And they are now actually incentivizing passive buildings, uh, multifamily, by allowing developers to build to a higher FAR, which is a significant uh, incentive for developers, and we're, we're seeing quite nice uptake uh, for that. Uh, passive buildings also uh, are expedited uh, regarding permitting, and the city of San Francisco has been doing this for a while now as well. And then uh, last year, Enterprise Green Communities uh, added a Phase Plus uh, Passive Building Certification to their highest tier of energy efficiency points for uh, for their certifications, which of course um, has given the program a nice boost as well. And in the affordable sector, we have now seen over the last two years affordable housing uh, agencies signing on, incentivizing passive buildings. PHFA was the first one, Passive Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency. They actually. Give now 10 additional points. Um, passive buildings are more uh, competitive during the LITEC uh, uh, application process. And uh, Illinois Housing Development Authority has also done so uh, just this past fall. They are now also awarding extra points. And uh, New York is about to uh, also go that route, but they're a little bit more careful. They say that passive buildings, just like uh, any other green certification, but we, we incentivize those. We, Put those to the front of the line. And uh, they might go even further in the near future. They're investigating right now the certification programs. A um, couple of quick uh, projects for you. Um, uh, recently, we've seen multifamily projects, and especially for the affordable housing sector, really, really uh, sharply increase. Um, And uh, this again is um, Linda's project and I'm showing you this because this is really when the development started um, for uh, passive houses to move into the multifamily sector and again Action Housing has uh, done a phenomenal job of piloting this transition and um, uh, I think uh, the community can really thank them enough. Um, that was some real pioneering work there. And we're now hopeful we'll be able to distill that into like a resource center for other affordable housing developers who want to do the same through the McArton Foundation. Again, the Uptown Love here. you already have seen that one um, by Action Housing. Uh, here in DC, a couple of Habitat projects. Uh, habitat, very early on, jumped, uh, jumped in on us. Nothing really large yet, but there are just the last project here, the Island City Project, a couple of townhouses. This is again the orchards, uh, 57 units in Hillsborough, uh, Portland, next to uh, Portland, Oregon. Very nice project. Um, And we will hear more about this project here, recently completed, um, the Line Grove Commons in DC. So you have a local project that you can go to and see how it looks like. And uh, under construction, this is to date the largest one, 276 units, affordable in Kansas City. Um, another one here in Maine, uh, 47 units, so you, you're saying that an idea this what's what really improving of the planets and it's not just like one. Uh, largest, um, uh, currently... No, not the largest one, that was the Kansas City one. <laughs> this one is the uh, the first mid-rise that is about to complete in New York City, uh, in Queens, actually, um, with 101 units. And this developer says he's building it to zero, for 0% zero additional cost. That's how well we have started to kind of dial in the climate-specific passive building standards for North America. We switched our certifications over from the German standard last March we're certifying now uh, completely the new standard, that was developed in an Department of Energy grant together with the Open Science Corporation. With these two uh, base certifications, uh, uh, on the left, the pH is just the envelope if you just want to do the um, conservation measures. But if you also want to add renewables uh, or community based generation and zero out your source energy completely, then we also have a source zero certification, basically an add-on um, verification. These are all the different climate zones right here. Uh, each um, location essentially has its own targets. Uh, we found that, that is really the best way to dial in um, and most cost-effectively cost the energy performance for buildings. And uh, the Department of Energy actually is co-promoting the FEDUS Plus uh, certification as the next step in energy efficiency along the zero energy variable. Uh, we're very proud of that cooperation so, it has been working really well for all of us. Today, in the country, we have about a like, 240 projects certified, pre-certified, that least that are like, construction almost completed, or uh, completed. Uh, and there are another 100 plus in the certification phase. It takes a long time. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much it. Yes. So one uh, last word, though. I'm wrapping up. <laughs> um, the uh, project. Curve. you can see this is nicely developed into this hockey stick. Um, beginning of this year we looked at uh, the square footage and not just the projects. We have just crossed the one five square feet uh, around the country. So that's no longer just a small niche project um, and we're very, very happy about this development. And it's mainly due to multi-family developments. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I mean, this time frame doesn't do justice to all the information that's represented on this panel. Uh, Philip Kett is our next speaker. Uh, Philip is president and CEO of Transitional Housing Corporation uh, and has worked to address family homelessness in the District of Columbia for more than 25 years. Uh, In the late 1980s, he helped form the partnership of Christ Lutheran Church Community Family Life Services and Samaritan Minister of Greater Washington uh, that became Transitional Housing Corporation. Phil was a member of THC's board of directors for its first 25 years, serving as president from uh, 2000 to 2003. He was a partner in several D.C. law firms, 23 years uh, and uh, led a pro bono legal program, has lived in DC since 1980, mostly in Ward 4, uh, and uh, has many degrees. <laughs> All of you, yes. welcome and thank you.
3: Thank you, Alan. I want to uh, say that I'm very pleased to have been invited to participate on this wonderful panel. I want to acknowledge my board and staff colleagues who have come to either listen to me or to make sure I don't do anything wrong. Uh, But for sure, for sure, I'm the least technologically savvy of all of the people on the panel. But I'm here because I believe in affordable housing, the cost of affordable housing being uh, available to people who need it and to continuing THC's mission to put more affordable housing on the street in Washington, D.C. So, permit me to give, me, give about two or three minutes of the background for THC, even more than the already did. We're 25 years old. We serve today more than 500 families in the District of Columbia. Those families typically come out of places you've read about, D.C. General Hospital, the motels on New York Avenue, and right now, as of today, there are more than 1,000 homeless families who are looking for places to stay here in Washington. Our uniqueness is that we provide both the housing to our families and the services that they need to advance and to thrive. That's what our mission has been since the beginning. And if I'm at, at, am I, if I'm at the helm, it will always be that way. We will always provide both housing and services. We started small. We had one building, 14 units. Uh, it was not a passive house qualified. <laughs> now we have more than 200 affordable housing units, and we are, preserving, we are in the process of preserving 150 more units, all in Washington, DC. The types of housing we provide are transitional, rapid rehousing, which I'm sure people have read about, permanent supportive housing, and affordable housing. Our affordable housing units, and we'll see this later in Weinberg Commons, are all for families earning 50% of the area median income or less. 50% of the area median income or less than that. And that's our, that's our sweet spot. That's who, that's who we serve. So with that, let me go to the project we want to talk about today. It's called Weinberg Commons. I believe Katrin also already referred to it, but I'm particularly proud to say it is at the apex of one of the main entrances to the District of Columbia. You see that sign there? It's at the corner of Benning Road and Southern Avenue, southeast in Ward 7. We didn't intentionally put it there, but that's where we found the available building that we could buy and renovate. Weinberg Commons is an innovative community. that combines state-of-the-art energy, which you'll hear more from our architect, Matt Fine, with affordable rents and supportive services for low-income and formerly homeless families. Let me show you, though, what it looked like before. You've probably seen this type of building in your own neighborhoods or in your own cities. They're rife throughout the District of Columbia. I would say this building was constructed in the late 50s or early 60s Frankly, there was nothing really wrong with it. It could have been renovated, as we've done our other projects, with non-passive house approaches, traditional techniques, and traditional building materials. But somebody convinced my predecessor. I've been on the job nine months. Somebody convinced my predecessor that she should embrace Passive House. So what we ended up with is an affordable housing project that actually can be beautiful, is beautiful, and not simply functional. We utilize the Passive House design principles to transform Weinberg Commons into a modern 36-unit affordable housing development. That's another shot uh, of the, there are three buildings, actually. Each one has 12 units. But they were all constructed to Passive House standards. Again, our architect Matt will address the technological aspects of it. But this is one of the three buildings that uh, we renovated. We opened it in November of 2015, so it had only been open for about four months now. We were able to reduce the energy consumption in this building by 50% so far. I think the jury's still out on ultimately how it will perform. I think we need more than three or four months worth of experience, but we expected it will achieve the highest standards. The interiors, and I'll just show you a couple shots of that, are constructed for families. So in order to live here, you need to be a family with children. So each of them has two bedrooms, one bath, and they're all constructed in about the same format, where you have a kitchen part of the living area and two bedrooms off to the side. As the owner and developer of THC and its affiliate, THC Affordable Housing, is able to pass on the savings that we have in our energy to our low-income families through offering below-market rents, which include utilities. Another shot. Uh, Matt, I hope you'll address the really cool windows in this basement. I think they're from Europe, aren't they? (coughs) right. Let me go to the actual specifics. When it's certified, Weinberg will be the first Passive House multifamily retrofit development in the country. We will utilize elements that are expected to reduce our energy costs by at least 90%. Sorry, that's wrong, up to 90%. As you've heard already, Passive House is the most rigorous energy efficiency building standard in the world. It's designed, it's achieved by constructing a building envelope that is extremely well insulated and airtight. Now, there's a common feature of all DC housing, multifamily housing, affordable housing. It's old. 78% was built before 1960. And the overwhelming majority of our low-income families in the district live in old buildings with aging systems poor insulation, and frequently deferred maintenance. I can take you on a tour right after this hearing and show you a number of buildings that I've looked at that suffer from all of those maladies. So why uh, a small nonprofit, relatively small nonprofit in the District of Columbia, why would we want to do this? Because it's part of our mission and always has been. Weinberg will have 36 two-bedroom units. 24 of the units are reserved for people who make 60% of the area median income, or less. That's, uh, sorry, let me take that back. Their rents will be $1228 per month. That's what a 60% AMI person can afford. What we've done at Weinberg, because of the energy savings, is offer them to our families for $950 a month, utilities included. So we are substantially below what the market would bear, even in the neighborhoods where we are operating. Now, the low rents that we can charge are only possible because of the passive house standards that we've achieved. Um, I will, in a minute, turn it over to Matt. but. Uh, Why, oh yeah, why would we, again, a small profit wanted, nonprofit developer, want to do this? How could we do it? Well, I think as one of the speakers before me has said, it doesn't cost that much more to do it. We believe that it was approximately 8% more costly to construct with passive house standards than it would have been through traditional techniques and materials. The other, The other reason we could do it is because we have a combination of financing financing. Through uh, tax credits, we have the Department of Behavioral Health in the district helping us out with a grant. We got vouchers from the D.C. Housing Authority for the families who live in our permanent supportive housing units. And these are all important factors being able to afford it. Um, with that, I think it's customary up on the Hill to say that, Madam Chair, i received the very in time to the gentleman from Virginia.
0: Thank you, you. you, sir, and I will uh, hand over the gavel as soon as I introduce the gentleman from Virginia. Matt Fine is uh, project manager for Peabody Architects, and uh, Mr. Peabody is in this room, uh, for those of you who are curious, um, and Matt has over 20 uh, years of general architecture practice and um, has, has focused the last 10 years uh, in, uh, on affordable multifamily housing. Um, as Phil mentioned, Matt was the project manager for Weinberg Commons. He was with uh, Zavos Architecture and Design a firm out of Frederick, Maryland. Um, He was the project leader. And Matt is a certified Passive House consultant. Um, He consulted to uh, Parsons, uh, the the new school for design, on the 2011 solar decathlon, you might have heard of, uh, known as Empower House. He captained D.C. Habitat for Humanity's Ivy City Passive Townhouse, Project through its duration, and he brought near net zero performance to those residents. Um, and again, he's with Peabody Architects now, and um, his aim is to bring high performance buildings to the mainstream. It's not just for the economically privileged. Matt, thank you for being here. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Good afternoon. You know, uh, a day-to-day basis, client comes, uh, comes to you and, and gives you a great opportunity like THC and Phil's group, and you really kind of sink your teeth into it. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the details of this project, just because that's really kind of what makes it all happen. It's kind of on a, a microscope. Scale uh, that we deal with these buildings, and uh, it's really what kind of motivates us. So, Weinberg Commons project uh, is not a typical project. Uh, typically, where you we deal with light type projects, the affordable housing, nonprofit world. Um, while it's important that mainstream work is being done at the scale it is, the resiliency just is not getting there. The comfort and the health are not getting there. We're not reaching our 2030 goals. So, when we saw this combination of THC, a mission-driven developer, a mission-driven developer, um, and they really knew what true sustainability meant when to energy reduction it really met with our with our kind of philosophies and, um, and to bring those technologies those philosophies to a larger scale to communities not just individuals but families and bring bring that to the kind of mass market as Katrin explained the the technologies are certainly different so, We really had to take a different mindset in in every step along the process. And while I'm not going to go into the details because that could take a long time, the the metric is understood as the best tool to get to net zero or to uh, reduce drastically the energy of these buildings. Now we had to acknowledge another uh, priority and that is The team needed to be committed from day one, and they had to be integrated. That goes from pre-development, from conceptual brainstorming, to all the way to progress meetings on site, punch list inspections. It it took every individual to kind of integrate that and to really bring it together. So that process, as we all have learned, is not always reality. We also had to identify that the existing conditions were something that we had to work with, not necessarily fight fight with. But in retrofit buildings, you're just given this this condition and you have to respond to it. So knowing kind of the principles of passive house, you know, it's nice to kind of think of an ideal situation, this pristine building that everything's gonna be ultra efficient where you can save every be to you possible, but you have to kind of pick your battles in these buildings and understand which ones to fight. So we had crawl spaces that were kind of nasty. We had roof sheeting that was moldy. We had existing choice that we had to somehow make an air, airtight assembly out of. So we had to adapt. But most importantly, we did not want to lose the focus of the end user being the primary goal here. Uh, While all the building science is fun and the process is fun, it really needs to be a healthy and comfortable uh, space for families and individuals and then kind of extending to the community. So kind of uh, when, we, when we sat down and did the brainstorming exercise for this project, we said, there needs to be some kind of substance to this. It can't be just a one-off project. It needs to be repeatable. And as we knew, there are countless, countless opportunities in, in the D.C. metro area to do this. Uh, so if we could make it work, we think that you know, the larger community could embrace it. Again, we knew this was going to be a different project, a different process. So from uh, the first week of construction, it became pretty evident how different it was. We hung uh, wood joints on the sides of this building to hold twice as much R-value of insulation on the outboard side of this wall. really kind of using the first step of kind of design and saying let's make the the envelope as robust as possible. So we basically created this woolly sweater for the building, filled filled nine and a half inches of dense packed fiberglass, paying attention to kind of the moisture um, in the climate and making sure that the wall breathed at the same time of, of being airtight. Second huge step of Passive House is to control air infiltration to make sure that where it does infiltrate, we know it and as you can see the numbers there were five times tighter than than a code building so that was certainly a a high mountain to climb for a retrofit building and that is our actual test so we got under the .6 ACH threshold for Passive House. And we really wanted to make sure that we could achieve this in a common, simple, low-tech way. So we designed it so that the control layers are reachable on the outside, and that it didn't take highly skilled laborers to put this assembly together, both on the inside and on the outside. And then just as at a basic scale, basic level, Okay, we're creating this wonderful insulated envelope, but we need to kind of think about what holes are, the holes of the windows and doors. So there's, while well, I said there was a low-tech solution to the, to the walls, you really need a great system in the glazing and the compression seals of European windows and what's now becoming American manufactured windows. So we created these apertures around these these holes in the building that Phil alluded to. In a retrofit building where we cannot recite the building we can't turn its axis so that the solar gain works in our favor we have to uh, deal with what we have and we have to tune the angle of these apertures so that the solar gain during the summer is not making uncomfortable interior conditions. So we're finding kind of that optimal angle to bring shade in the summer and capture the heat of the solar gains in the winter. At the same time, we didn't want to make these boxes that created dark cavernous interiors. So you can see from the interior that it opens up still. And you can also see kind of the crisp uh, shadow lines along the window so that basically that window there is taking 50% of the sun at that point because of that solar shade and resilience is just kind of a cornerstone again to this type type of design and building the rain screen uh, tough rain screen that can last for years but still have the ability to breathe reachable These, these buildings again as trying to make them repeatable, reachable as far as economics go is critical as well. So I'm going to just go through a couple of these sustainable features that we used. Again, these are not high-tech pieces of equipment. They just are integrated. So the lungs of the building, the ERV, recaptures recaptures energy at the same time it delivers ventilated air to all spaces. It removes the moistures the smells of the uh, kitchens and baths. Low-tech, again, we uh, dug trenches around this building to extend the insulation. We use that as an opportunity to put a ground loop, PEX and glycol, and bring that energy back in the building on the incoming stream of ventilation there. High-efficiency heating and cooling. This is basically a, a piece of machinery that can It normally is specified for a single-family house. It's serving 12 dwelling units. Drain water heat recovery system. Again, kind of tapping into the heat that we already have in the building, recirculating that. And then renewables on the roof. So solar thermal collector for hot water. It's astounding how much energy goes into heating water and just having it sit there and stored and reheated just to deliver it to to occupants while we're choosing to do that in a passive way. And then solar uh, PV as a last step. We want to stress that in a passive house kind of philosophy, that's always the last step because you don't know how much you have to make up until you really optimize that building. Again, this is just kind of a scale of the project, and we believe that... uh, kind of projects like this really reach out to the communities again on a small scale but you have to start at the small scale work up to the family level make sure health and comfort is delivered and retain these, these communities with this type of building. thank you
0: last, uh, certainly not least, our final panelist, Krista Edgar is Senior Program Director uh, of Green Communities for Enterprise Community Partners. Krista is Director of Initiatives at, um, at Enterprise, and she has more than a decade of experience leading energy efficiency initiatives with affordable housing stakeholders. Uh, she manages Enterprise's National Green Training and technical assistance programs, which includes strategic oversight of the Green Communities Criteria and National Certification Program, a technical assistance fund uh, focused on portfolio energy reductions through the Better Buildings Challenge, and initiatives designed to improve the health of residents through building upgrades and other related trainings and tools. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Krista.
5: Very pleased to be here. I'm going to be talking with you about a program of enterprises called Enterprise Green Communities that's very compatible with Passive House. And I'll start by sharing um, a little bit about the background of our program and our intentions in entering into the sustainable space. And then I'll give you a high-level overview of the different technical components that are included in the program. And then I'll finish with a few different examples of how the program has been implemented and the policies. Across the country, and I'm really looking forward to your questions at the end. So, I will begin with a quote from our founder, Mr. Jim Rouse. And I'm going to, um, he says, We believe, because it is true, that people are affected by their environment, by space and scale, by color and texture, by nature and beauty, that they can be uplifted, made to feel important. And I think that's just a really lovely way of setting the context for all of us that are involved in implementing or affecting housing, that whenever we're engaged in that sort of activity, we have the opportunity to affect the quality of life of the people who are going to live there. So Mr. Ross created the Enterprise Foundation, now known as Enterprise Community Partners, upon his retirement from a prolific real estate development career. We're a national nonprofit based in Columbia, Maryland, and in short, we focus on increasing both the quantity and the quality of affordable housing nationwide. So since 1982, we have worked to bring together the people and the resources needed to create affordable housing in strong neighborhoods. To date, Enterprise has invested more than $18.6 billion, helped create nearly 340,000 homes, and touched millions of lives. For a moment, I'd like you to imagine with me a world where housing for low and moderate income people is not only abundant, but also healthy, safe, durable, comfortable, efficient, resilient, and environmentally responsible. And that these attributes were achieved without great cost and through standard practice. This is our vision, and we think that this can be our reality. So, since the launch of the Enterprise Green Communities criteria in 2004, Enterprise has been leading a national effort to ensure that people living in affordable housing are healthier, spend less money on utilities, and have more opportunities through their connections to transportation, and quality food, and healthcare services. And in the early 2000s, we started hearing from our partners, who are owners and developers of affordable housing around the country, that they were really interested in building more efficient, durable, healthier homes. They just really didn't know how to get there. At that point in time, the LEED program existed, but there was no pathway for residential projects, and particularly multi-family buildings. So we did quite one of the things that Enterprise does best. We gathered some of the greatest minds in the country, came together, and developed the green Communities criteria to be that standard that affordable housing developers could use to guide their their activities in creating more sustainable homes. So since that time, we've um, been, been working quite hard. So in 2010, we developed a certification system to verify project's compliance with our criteria. And since that time, we've certified more than 29,000 units across 39 states, all the blue states you see here, and the District of Columbia. In addition to those unit counts, we currently have more than 51,000 units approved for pre build. So they're in the midst of construction right now. And we have 2,700 other units also. Um, at a stage of the process. So certification to our criteria is only available for affordable housing projects, and slight variations in the criteria allow appropriate nuance when addressing single family versus multi-family, new construction versus rehab of existing buildings, and properties that are either located in urban or rural locations. So we try to do all of that through our one set of criteria. And what is our criteria? Um, The eight categories are listed here on the screen that you see. And collectively, they they reflect an ambitious yet achievable framework, a holistic framework appropriate for the affordable housing market. They've been collaboratively created, maintained, and updated, balancing ideal performance outcomes with the realities of implementation. So if you start at the very top, there's integrated design, just making sure that you have an appropriate team together, doing thoughtful planning up front. And we move to location and neighborhood fabric, which is where are you going to build your project. Then site improvements. Which is self-explanatory, right? But um, deals with erosion control, stormwater management, et cetera. Then we go to water conservation, energy efficiency, materials, healthy living environment, and then we close with operations, maintenance, and resident engagement. And ideally, that the lessons learned also from operating current properties will influence the integrative design process of your of your next project. So in order to receive Green Community Certification, projects must meet all mandatory criteria, which are located in in all of those eight areas I just explained, and achieve a certain number of optional points um, through other measures. New construction projects are held to a slightly higher bar than our rehabs of existing buildings, as the opportunity to cost effectively implement performance measures is greater in new construction projects. However, all projects are held to a level of rigor, and there's only one level of certification. You either are or you are not um, certified. So the process of certification is verified at two stages, pre-build before construction begins, and then post-build, and teams are helped along the way throughout the construction process as well um, with the assistance of local energy professionals. So that's a background context of our program. I'm going to go in now to a high-level overview of those eight different categories and then touch on the the policy work. So the first one, integrative design, I've listed the names of the different measures that are included in this category, on your slide here. So a successful integrative design process facilitates the design and development team's achievement of their objectives throughout the project life cycle. So all the thought that went in to the goals, making sure that that is not a useless exercise that actually gets, gets realized um, later. And through our evaluation work of project certified Tour to program, we found that the projects that invest the most time and energy in decision making before plans are finalized are the ones that have the highest levels of performance at the least cost. And while this is intuitively important, right, plans and specs are the instructions for the project team, Our objective is to ensure that these are thoughtfully developed with an eye towards project outcomes. Green as an add-on is a strategy to increase project costs. Considering green as one goal of many for a project is a strategy to increase performance and satisfaction without increasing costs. So the criteria here specify collaborative planning, energy performance goals, resident health, and resilience. Moving on to the next category, location and neighborhood fabric. This is critical because locating a project within an existing neighborhood and in close proximity to infrastructure, transportation, and services encourages more resource-efficient development of land, reduces development costs, conserves energy, and adds to the vitality of the overall community. Third category, site improvements. Low-impact design and development principles minimize the site's environmental footprint and lower infrastructure costs associated with stormwater management. Four is water conservation. This translates into direct utility savings for residents and owners and conserves a precious natural resource. According to the American Water Works Association Research Foundation, the average US residential household uses 41 gallons per person per day in their homes. We're trying to contain this um, through the measures that we have in this category. Five is energy efficiency and improvements in building energy. Performance result in utility cost savings for more efficient heating, cooling, hot water, lights, and appliances, which improve residents' comfort, lowers operating costs, and provides environmental benefits. Six is materials. Purchasing green materials and recycling and reusing materials whenever possible can improve conditions for resident health, enhance project durability, and reduce waste and disposal costs. Moving on into seven, which is all about health, is healthy living environments. Um, So criteria in this category address environmental factors, such as radon and lead, which have a direct impact on human health. They also address the design of outdoor spaces and interior common areas in a way that encourages greater frequency and duration of physical activity. Um, measures in this category guide project teams to create healthy living spaces through various construction practices like ventilation and maintenance practices like green cleaning and pest management and finally category 8 operations maintenance and resident engagement um, is about creating educational materials and orientations to help educate residents and staff on green features that were designed to deliver health, economic, and environmental benefits as well as their role in realizing those benefits in their own lives in the project um, itself. So this is a system that brings the benefits of green building to those that need it most. We're talking about lower energy bills, less energy consumption, healthier living environments, and stronger communities. These issues are not abstract. They have clear impacts for families across the country. Um, And we feel that this is a, a method to create housing that is truly affordable and sustainable. And I'll close by sharing a little bit about policy implementation. So for the, last, for the past decade, the criteria has served as a powerful and influential policy lever by setting a standard for state and city housing finance agencies and guiding what housing providers are either required or incentivized to include in the development and rehab of their properties. The criteria has been integrated into financing mechanisms for affordable housing in 25 states and seven large metropolitan areas. It raises the bar to say that healthy, sustainable, affordable housing is not an add-on or a bonus. It's the minimum acceptable standard for housing that is being publicly financed in this country. So for example, the District of Columbia here is a national leader in green building, which supports the vision set forth in their sustainable DC plan. And in DC, all projects for which public financing constitutes 15% or more of their total project costs must meet the standards relative to green design and building and must certify to the enterprise criteria or at least the the silver level of the LEED program as a condition of getting financing to develop their project here. So where there is the greatest need, let's provide a solution. The technology and processes for building sustainable homes that are affordable or understood. They just really need to be applied. And I feel that the Green Community's criteria, Passive House, are important tools to ensure that low-income families have healthy, well-designed, affordable, and sustainable homes that are connected to opportunity. So I encourage you to visit our website and per- peruse our criteria, the requirements, the recommendations, the rationale. We also have hundreds of tools on our website that I'd encourage you to download customize and use for yourself, so that we all can work together to ensure that these practices that I've described move from being best practice to standard practice. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Krista. And that was great to uh, wrap up on the policy note, appropriate. Um, and I uh, want to open up for questions now, but I, um, on that, um, I thought maybe I would just start by asking um, a a few of you mentioned LIHTC, and for those of you not familiar, it's a low-income housing tax credit, and I wondered if if y'all could talk about kind of the uh, bringing together some of these policies, federal, state, local, um, and the importance of public-private partnerships, and sort of how... For making this work, and, and so folks can understand sort of how these um, how these come together, and uh, what what is important to to keep an eye on. Anyone
5: want to Take us
1: to. No. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Great, um, so tech is a mechanism for financing affordable housing in this country. The housing credit is one of the most important financing tools to create affordable housing. Um, and each allocator, generally each state in the country gets to decide how they um, disperse those funds, those housing credits. Right? So they have a QAP, or Qualified Allocation Plan, which includes their priorities for which projects they'll fund or they're, they will not fund. And We found that more, the vast majority of states in this country now, in their QAPs, do require or incentivize an energy efficiency or green building program. We've done we did a study on this last year. It's on our website called Green Policies Build Green Homes, and we saw that the vast, I think, 75 percent of all homes financed in this country by housing credit are meeting some energy efficiency or green standards. So it's a really important lever. Um, But what I think is critical in ensuring that it's meeting the objectives is ensuring that it's um, referencing a standard that is verified by some body, right? Like Passive House or Green Communities lead other standards, but also that um, project teams, when they're applying for the financing are also prepared to follow through with their commitments later on. And we're seeing different states and housing credit allocators address the issue of um, following up to see how their projects are performing in different ways. For instance, the state of Virginia just released a study showing how the the green projects that they financed with the QAP performed differently than non-certified projects. And it showed a compelling uh, case to do.
4: So it's a really important tool. Thank you very much. I'd like to just add on to what Krista spoke about, as far as uh, kind of the quality assurance protocols that uh, organizations like Theus uh, have baked into their into their uh, process, and that uh, really kind of underlines kind of the responsibility of the team members from the schematic phase while you make the application for the, uh, the QAP and um, you know, without that piece you know we could all be kind of just signing our life away if, if we really don't um, know what's going to go into this and we don't have qualified builders on the team, we don't have qualified engineers and architects uh, so that's kind of a hurdle that uh, there's kind of this growing um, this gap that uh, we have to get you know, trained trained people on these projects uh, to make sure that they do uh, bring long-term resilience and risk-free. Thank
1: you. So I wanted to add to that. um, I a slightly different perspective. Um, Most of the states in the U.S. still operate with the 2009 International Energy Conservation Code. There's a 2012, there's now a 2015. And the um, 2012 and 2015 actually have really benefited by the Passive House protocols that have been introduced into the U.S. And, and uh, it's our perspective that uh, it, it, adhering to the most recent IECC is actually a game changer for the U.S. I think there are those of us who are really mission-driven and really feel strongly about this, that we're going to do this work ourselves. But it's all the others that don't do this work that we really have to impact. And so state by state, we need to look at adopting the most recent energy conservation code as a way to really make some significant gains in um, the amount of energy that buildings are using. It's not just for those who are mission driven, but it has to be for everybody. Very good point.
0: Thank you.
6: Hi, uh, my name is Dan Reber. I'm with the Northern Manhattan Improvement Corporation in New York City. Um, we're the largest uh, weatherization agency in the borough of Manhattan. Um, and we have lots of experience with enterprise green communities, um, thankfully. Uh, I wanted to ask two questions, one for, um, for Linda and um, Phil and uh, Matt. The contractors that you employed to do your projects what was the learning curve like for them? Because um, I know, much like the architects and engineers, as you mentioned, Matt, um, there's a there's a big learning curve. Um, and, uh, and then I'll look, just a quick technical follow-up question.
1: It really does start with putting together the best team. I have to tell you, it makes all the difference. Um, I can um, tell you that on our Uptown Lofts demonstration project, we used Masaidi's construction, and we did hit the uh, 0.6 air changes per hour on the Passive House building, but they also delivered a building that's not Passive House, that's 0.9 air changes per hour. So there was a a deep commitment from them to to quality control, and then uh, we saw it spill over into the other buildings, so we have just a beautiful... Tight building, not as tight as passive house, but um, a really high quality building, and they are now adopting this as regular practice for their for their work.
6: Did you have to go through some several contractors, or you you were able to go through a process that helped you pick the right one the first time?
1: Um, we did, we interviewed several contractors, and then they be, they came on at the same time we started our passive house work and our design work. So they were an integral part of the. Uh, The design.
3: I'll just say uh, from a layman's standpoint, I think the learning curve was steep for the contractors and the subcontractors we used. Matt may have a more uh, detailed and technological answer than I do, but uh, it's hard to find somebody locally, at least, who knows the kind of passive house standards that we were trying to
4: approach uh, and the techniques. Yeah, I think Linda really uh, hit the nail on the head when she talked about airtightness because at the end of the day, airtightness means quality, means craftsmanship, and um, you know we, we talk about contractors having kind of some experience with passive house. There's builder's trainings now available that should be an absolute, um, but it should go one layer deeper. It should go to the subcontractors because again, we're talking about the details. So um, the the bidding process and how, how subcontractors are qualified to be on that team really in reality does not happen until the eleventh hour of the process. And uh, you know, those are the folks that need to be trained as well as the general contractors. So that's kind of the gap that, that we really have to work through. And the quick follow up question was on the um
6: it's mostly for that people <laughs> <to watch. laughs> Um, The follow-up question was on, uh, you mentioned the uh, 0.58 care changes per hour at CFM 50. Um, Was that a whole building test or was that unit by unit test? And Linda, what did you guys do on on
1: your project? I'm actually glad you brought that up because um, it's not easy doing a whole building that's 25 or 30,000 square feet. And so you do have to have the contractor buy-in. Things have to shut down um, in the middle of the project, and then at the end of the project. And um, we didn't hit it. I mean, we did great in the middle of the project. And then at the end of the project, we have a lot more penetrations and a lot more uh, challenges. Um, it took a couple of days to work through all of the variables and all of the issues. and um, So it's, it's definitely not easy. But we did it. So um, I'd like to interject something here uh, also real quick. So uh, on both of these
2: projects, um, we now have actually multifamily on-site verification protocol. Uh, those guys were still so early that uh, they were kind of like uh, front lines. Uh, so now, the uh, on site verification protocol um, for one, there's uh, a training that is geared towards large building verifiers who are being taught how to do a whole building um, lower door test and how to set, it, uh, set up for it. And I think in your case, also, you, you had a lot of leakage between the units. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, we didn't have the leakage requirement for the units just yet. So, FIAS Plus aligns also with the multifamily, uh, high rise, mid rise EPA. Uh, quality assurance
4: protocol so we test between the units each unit itself and the whole building test as well yeah um, just just to kind of reiterate Katrin said uh, whole building for our, for a building but we thought that that was you know looking at kind of the overall volume as the easiest way to make the whole so unit by unit make it airtight and then kind of um, go unit by unit and seal cracks with the traditional methods of caulk and tape um, so that communi- communication of odors and, and vapors uh, don't don't pass because that's obviously one kind of, important part of multifamily living is you know, to have your own volume of air really. Thank you for that question. Other questions? Hi, my name is Paul. I'm a reporter for The Line
0: of
1: Wire. And um, so Mr. Heck, you talked about um, the added cost of, um, of
0: retrofitting being about 8%. So I was wondering, uh, maybe it's a question for Mr. Hecht, but what is the cost that if you're just building um, a structure from scratch of, uh, of putting in all these energy saving devices
3: I was with you till the very end when you said the cost of building from scratch. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what the answer to that is. We've never really built from scratch. In terms of retrofitting buildings, existing buildings, that's what we've done so far. Um, and the 8% that I referred to was for the additional cost of doing a retrofit. I, Matt, do you have a suggestion for new construction? Uh, if that's what you meant.
0: Right, I'm sorry, compared to new construction. Okay. If you're...
4: I think we're going to see costs apples to apples go down for new construction relative to retrofit. That eight percent comes from taking all the site development work that, that we had to do. Um, you know, those in you know, an existing building, in you know, a '60s era building, can can kill the opportunity to make a passive house because we're talking about splitting metering up. It's you know sub to sub meter to basically. Redo the infrastructure coming to the buildings, both uh, for electric, for water, and um, you know we were able to to kind of work those channels on this project and and not absorb a lot of those costs and make sure that that cost goes to you know the passive house, uh, the envelope and, and the those systems. Um, but you know whether it's new construction or not, we need to understand kind of. The priority of uh, you know the locations of these sites and urban centers, and not kind of make it uh, more challenging. Whether you know at the same time that we're trying to kind of do good, um, so uh, I think there's some kind of work to do on the QAP uh, in, in all these jurisdictions to uh, kind of see where our priorities are. Whether it's uh, really saving saving the use of Of communities and sites, or whether it's just about checking a box off. Can I
1: just add that? Our um, McKeesport renovation project of the Y was about $100 a square foot. And the construction of the Uptown Lofts building, um, there was a 3% differential between the passive house and the non passive house building. And that was controlling for everything. Uh, the only thing we changed was the envelope. We used triple glazed on the uh, triple glazed windows on the Passive House building, and double glazed on the other. And we spent a lot more attention to the separation or the elimination of um, um, what's that term <laughs> of the the... of the, uh, of the um of the No, of the interior and exterior. And we eliminated all thermal bridges in the north building. So it was about a 3% differential, about $300,000. And I'll, I'll add one other price
5: point to that conversation. So with green communities, our energy efficiency mandated level is aligned with the ENERGY STAR program, so it's not as aggressive as the Passive House. Although we incentivize through optional points projects to follow Passive House and more aggressive standards. But in 2012 was the last time that we um, did an analysis of the costs to um, build and to operate projects to our standard. And at that time, we found that, on average, it was a 2% incremental cost to the total development cost, which does vary per building market, right? But it was slightly more than 2% for rehab, slightly less than 2% for new construction. And overall, the payback was at about five and a half years. just
2: um, real Just one quick comment, too. Um, so uh, the passive building standards, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we recalibrated them. Uh, we started originally with the European standards, but it turned out that they were kind of, like in many cases, uh, taking people to too high levels of insulation because they they were coming from a, a heating-dominated climate. So there's a bias towards that. Now, in most North American climates, we have, uh, at least in the U.S., like heating and cooling demand. So uh, really, what needed to happen was like a, a balancing between heating and cooling. We've done that. We have new climate standards, climate-specific standards now, which are also cost-optimized. And what we're seeing now, um, the uh, one project that I showed you in Queens that is currently under construction that uh, where the developer says he can do it at 0% additional cost, uh, we're, we're seeing some really, really good results applying these new standards. So um, I think we're going to see the cost come down significantly.
0: Thank you. That's
2: an important
4: question.
0: Others?
2: Hi, my name is Andrea Bradenke, I'm with Congresswoman Susan Delaney. Um This question is for you,
5: Krista, and any of the others. Can you elaborate more on what you mean by resident engagement? Is that more on the after the building has been developed, or is it more on like, local sourcing materials and labor, or could you just kind of elaborate on that? Sure. Thanks. So our category eight, which is operations maintenance, rest engagement, really has to do with um, engaging, making sure that, so when we certify a building, it's right when the building's completed, right? Either when the construction or the retrofit is finished and people are starting to move in. Although our engagement with the project kind of ends at that point, we want to make sure that the project is set up to operate for 30, 50 years, just as well as the people who designed it hoped that it would be, right? And so whether or not you mean to or not, if you're living in a building, you're operating the building, <laughs> you're going to have an impact on how much energy it's going to be used, how healthy it's gonna be, et cetera. So we um, work with the resident services staff of these multi-family properties in that design and construction phase to make sure that when the building is put into service, There are orientations for the residents that include information about um, key tips to reduce energy, um, ways to make inexpensive but green cleaning products that they can use at home. Um, Making sure that they know how the home that they're living in is different than a standard home and how to maintain it um, over the long run. So that's what that category is about. Um, We also make sure that, or our standards make sure that When the buildings are designed, that residents have a voice at that table, right? So that they're um, sharing their priorities and their experiences with the building and that can feed into the design decisions as well.
0: I wanted to add real quick follow-up. Have you had what kind of feedback have you had from residents? Those
5: residents are really proud to know that they're living in a green building, you know, that they're living in a building that is a high performer. Um, actually, right now we're doing some work with the D.C. Housing Authority in and resident engagement, and it is amazing to hear the stories and the, um, just the wealth of information that residents can bring to the table and start sharing with their neighbors about the concepts of efficiency and green cleaning, conservation, et cetera. That they could really um, add to add to the conversation as well.
0: Thanks.
4: Um, Yeah, my question is about uh, sort of the operations and maintenance as it relates to to verification. Do you have a? And rather than take it abstract, you have a real project. So, um, uh, do you have a professional property manager there uh, at the site and? do they have any particular training that, to, to maintain these buildings so that, um, yeah, and, and what's the sort of feedback loop between the, the split incentive, right, between your cost to capitalize these measures versus how do you see that the, the residents are, you know, operating within those bounds and not, you know, going on a spree or something like that. So how, do you, how did you balance those kind of competing economic things in a real project?
3: Uh, that's really the uh, biggest question we have going forward. We do have a professional property manager. Uh, it's a property manager who is familiar with the area, familiar with the demographics of the neighborhood, and who has been on site since before the building was opened. One of one of the uh, differences I think between what Krista was saying and our experience, we didn't consult with the residents before we did it. It was an empty building, and we renovated it to the standards that we thought. Would help the residents long-term, but frankly, would also help THC. If we're going to be paying the utilities, we darn well want to make them as low well as possible. So one of the uh, things we're going to be doing, we got and we got some money for this from one of our funders, the LISC Local Initiative um, Support Corporation. LISC uh, is going to give us money to train both the staff, the property management staff, and the residents on how to use the building and probably equally importantly how not to use the building because when you go in it's like this rush of air that
4: comes out yes. you.
3: and it, it was due to you what your design was and what happened you.
4: yeah great question um, you know the energy bill right now because that, that goes to THC's mailbox right now One is, bill. is the only way to, to know that right now um, but you know Certainly, the engagement process needs to happen in these projects. We need to think of designing the building, not start, not stopping, um, with turning over the keys, but actually making sure that you know it's functioning like uh, any other engineered machinery. And uh, uh, you know, that's pretty, the proof is, is really in the, kind of the performance of that. So definitely um, an area of, of um, improvement.
0: Thank you. No questions? I have just a quick one on um, job opportunities and uh, sort of what you're seeing as some local economic development opportunities uh, in, in green building and, and retrofits. Anything come to mind? I think this is huge opportunity. Um, so,
2: uh, as we're seeing this kind of like curve develop, right, that I showed with the projects, uh, and it has become clear that we need knowledgeable uh, professionals who guide that uh, process from like building over designing and verifying and quality assuring. So there's that. There needs to be a massive kind of training that is going on to bring people up to speed. But also we talked about it earlier, the materials that uh, are coming onto the market are are, sought after the high performance. There's a lot of opportunity for actual manufacturing, I think. Um, So hopefully we'll see the high performance industries uh, in the U.S. step up to the plate and come up with
0: new products that are more cost effective. Thank you. And we're seeing some more... Products right, manufactured here that were overseas uh, not long ago, right? Okay, well, thank you. I want to thank the panel uh, and I want to thank all of you for coming today very much.